Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's January, 2023. Testing for SARS-CoV-2 among asymptomatic patients, particularly at the time of hospital admission or prior to invasive procedures, has become a common component of many healthcare facilities' COVID-19 infection prevention program. It's always a good idea to periodically reevaluate interventions that have been used or recommended in light of new evidence and experiences. And this is certainly true of the various strategies that were implemented during the first three years of the COVID-19 pandemic, given how our understanding of the virus and how it is transmitted has changed, as well as the evolution of other mitigation measures, such as vaccination and use of personal protective equipment. In this month's issue of ITCHY, several papers address the topic of asymptomatic testing for SARS-CoV-2. These papers range from observational studies conducted in a variety of hospital settings over various time periods during the pandemic, to a commentary by the Shea Board of Trustees that was just published online last month. I'm thrilled to have authors of several of these papers here with me today to talk broadly about this strategy and more specifically about their work. So joining me today are Dr. Jennifer Sillar, an Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Jerome Lees, the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and an Associate Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Amo Lesho, an Infectious Disease Physician and Healthcare Epidemiologist at Rochester Regional Health in Rochester, New York. And Dr. Tom Talbot, a Professor of Medicine and the Chief Hospital Epidemiologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville and the President-Elect of Shea. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So before we talk about the specifics of the papers that each of you published this month, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk more generally about laboratory-based screening for SARS-CoV-2 among asymptomatic persons seeking various types of healthcare, typically inpatient care or invasive procedures. So what's the rationale for doing that? I'll start. This is Tom Talbot. I think as you flash back to now almost three years ago, which is kind of scary to think, but three years ago, as SARS-CoV-2 emerged, as the pandemic started, most of us in infection prevention being really, really the precautionary principle of really trying to prevent spread of this new virus that we really didn't understand and, and really were nervous about spreading in our healthcare setting. And then the awareness of individuals who may be asymptomatic and be as infectious and able to spread the virus. I think it was a natural iteration for many facilities to start to look at ways to identify patients on admission when they're coming into the the facility or before certain procedures. And we could go on a whole other podcast about aerosol generating procedures and their risk thereof, but at the time really concerned about the risk of, of dispersal and other things that could increase the spread of virus. And so a lot of facilities began, mine included, very widespread testing of almost all admissions that come into the facility, widespread almost all procedures because intubation and extubation had traditionally been classified as an aerosol generating procedure to identify those patients, place them in isolation precautions, you know, have kind of alerting to healthcare workers about the type of PPE to wear to really reduce that transmission of healthcare associated COVID. So that was really, I think, while it started. And then as things have evolved, as we've gotten more understanding of the virus, as we've got more immunity, a vaccine, and really recognizing some potential downsides of testing, it's kind of led, I think, to all the authors today to kind of review this, look at the benefit, and, and really start to ask, how do we use this intervention in the setting of larger infection prevention uh, strategies? 
That's great. And I think you know many institutions are reporting pretty high attack rates among roommates of these asymptomatically infected patients with rates of 20 to 40 percent, depending somewhat on the duration of time that the two roommates were together. So certainly probably made sense at that time and maybe in some settings now, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But with that said, are there any potential downsides or unintended consequences of, of testing all of these asymptomatic patients? I'll take a stab. This is Emil. One of the things, you know, hospitals are increasingly financially constrained and uh, pre-procedure testing in asymptomatic patients and admission testing and repeat testing is costing our system almost a million or more dollars a year. Some of the tests have to be sent out. And another unintended consequence, if you will, is potential slowdown on patient throughput that it can have when emergency rooms are bursting at the seams. And then finally, if you're asymptomatic and you're feeling good and you've just gone through, maybe some of us have been through a preparation for a colonoscopy and suddenly your test pops up positive and it's, you know, it's not a fun couple of days to repeat if you have to repeat it. So there are just a few. There's been a lot of discussion to it. I think some of your papers get into is it can be difficult to distinguish between somebody who's infectious and somebody who previously had COVID and is no longer infectious just based on screening testing alone. So that's also become a common concern and question with this practice. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later as well. So I think that's really a good background as we move into our discussion of your papers. And so just last month, in December of 2022, the Shea Board of Trustees, as I mentioned, published a commentary that provides a description of some of the very issues that all of you just outlined and some guidance on the use of asymptomatic laboratory screening for SARS-CoV-2 virus as an infection prevention measure in healthcare facilities. And that paper does appear in this month's issue of ITCHE. As the lead author of that paper, Tom, can you tell us why the Shea Board of Trustees felt that it was necessary for Shea to publish such a document and perhaps why it was published as a commentary rather than an official guideline? Yeah. So the members of the Shea Board for several months, as I'm sure many Shea members were really noticing the impact of testing, both the consequences, the resource use, and the questions being raised about the utility. And what we began to see kind of across the U.S. was folks just starting to stop the practice We'd engage with our CDC colleagues, and they've never really recommended widespread routine testing outside of nursing home populations. And so really saw this void where there wasn't going to be guidance as far as testing and when to start and stop testing. And so we felt as a board and as a society, being the experts in pathogen transmission, it was really a natural place for us to have this commentary to talk through, as you'll see in the paper, really the nuanced issues around testing. We decided to do a commentary more than a grade-based guideline, in part because the evidence base really is fairly thin to really lend itself to a grade, but also the need to really timely turn around and get something out there. We really wanted to provide that guidance to the membership, to the larger individuals at large about how to really assess the testing practices, metrics to use, doing a risk assessment to really assess areas that may need testing as an intervention, and other kind of thoughts around the concept of asymptomatic testing. So what recommendations did you and your colleagues provide in the, in your statement? Yeah, as we went through the, the evidence, really, we found that, that there was really limited evidence really showing the impact of such testing on reducing transmission. There were some notes in certain populations that may be some spread or some at least identification of nosocomial cases. But whether this testing would have prevented it, as opposed to kind of looking back on our kind of concepts of levels of control and hierarchies of control, 
And then really looking at the increasing number of kind of unintended consequences of testing that are being reported, not just the cost, not just the impact of mentioned on throughput and length of stay, but even things like equity, where you think about pre-procedure testing, and some patients may not have access to that testing. You may have false sense of assurance that a negative pre-procedure test means a patient's not infected, and do you have relaxation of practices? So really began to kind of really tease out, really, what are we trying to do with this, and is it meeting the need of that intervention? And in the paper we talk about, I think many of us in infection prevention know this kind of concept of the Swiss cheese model, where you've got a lot of interventions at play. You don't want all the holes to line up so that the virus gets from one end to the other end, being a person, a healthcare worker, patient. But each layer has is not 100%. And even though one layer may be really good at detecting a lot of asymptomatic patients, when you layer it in with all the other strategies at play, the unintended consequences may not warrant the need for that kind of intervention. So really looking at things like heightening infection prevention practices of screening and universal masking. And one thing is we thought through this, you know, for example, with, with standard precautions, we don't routinely test every patient coming in the hospital to see if they've got a bloodborne pathogen. We have interventions of control that to prevent that transmission and spread that can be widely implemented and have less of a negative impact. So that's really as we were kind of walking through that. We do provide some guidance in a risk assessment kind of framework of things to think about where you may have populations or kind of targeted environments that would necessitate testing as one of your strategies. Things such as semi-private rooms where you're not as able to maybe effectively mask. And we know that the reliability of things like hand hygiene between patients you know, is probably less so in other practices. Things like a behavioral health unit where patients are there together co-located. They're doing a lot of group therapy. The patient's ability to mask may be suboptimal. There may be targeted ways where you'd say, based on activity in my community, we're going to start testing and then in this very specific population, but not routine widespread testing. You know, it's interesting, as the as the paper went out in the media last, last month, a lot of what was said was we said you should not test at all. And that's really not what the paper talks about. It talks about widespread routine testing and using your risk assessment to gauge whether testing should be implemented versus other heightened strategies of control. Great. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely saw some of that press coverage you were talking about. But when you read the document, I think, as you get point out, the, the recommendation is really a lot more nuanced than what some of those headlines would lead you to believe. So I do encourage everyone to, to read that paper. I think there's a lot of great information in there. And with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to the studies that the rest of our panel published in this issue that describe their facilities' experiences with laboratory screening for SARS-CoV-2 among asymptomatic hospital inpatients. I think these studies may offer some useful information for those of us who are reconsidering if and how to use this strategy as part of our own prevention efforts. So, Jen, I'd like to start with your paper because it includes data from some of the earliest months of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. And so can you just start by telling us what question or questions you and your colleagues were trying to answer? Yes, thanks. This is Jen. So really, the inception for this study was kind of born in late spring, early summer 2021. And so if we kind of put that back in the context, this was around the time where, you know, a little bit pre-Delta, but kind of around that time frame, we had a little bit of that lull. And so we really did step back and try and think, you know, with a year of COVID at that time under our belt, how do we do with this practice? Was it something that was something we should continue to do, beneficial? Did it even change or have a more like more of a benefit across different types of hospital settings. And so with our operational system, we had the luxury of getting data from four different hospital settings that we could try and compare to to see if we could figure out were there any differences? Was this something that was particularly beneficial? 
and how to even define what means beneficial. And so with that, we really did, I mean, look back between April 2020 through June 2021, and that was our study period for asymptomatic COVID testing across four different hospital settings. So we had an academic healthcare center, we did commu- associated community hospital, a pediatric hospital, and a psychiatric hospital we could draw data from. And so we did look at community case rates from our local state department health. And from that, we were able to correlate what kind of transmission setting those fell into. So we could put a numerical number about how many weeks were spent in low to substantial, moderate, or high transmission. And so we also kind of did the sub-analysis to figure out, at that time, we had the beginnings of more vaccination data, um, but clearly very very truncated compared to the rest of our studies. So with that, we did take in mind um, vaccination status between February 2021 through June 2021 and define that as folks who are not fully vaccinated and then folks who were fully vaccinated being two, at that time, two doses of an mRNA vaccine or the adenoviral vector vaccine. And then we also did a a smaller sub-analysis to see if there was any difference in the community rates of just the patients for pediatric population, so ages 0 to 18, to see if there's any difference with that particular community case rate as well. So that was the first part, is figuring out the number needed to find one asymptomatic positive patients among all the admissions data. And the second portion of it really was to try and define or figure out what was, what is the, you know, the level of benefit? What is, where is that threshold? Where is that number that we can maybe look to to see? Is there a significant number need to test to find one positive patient out of however many patients? So to do that, we pose this as a survey question, actually, to a listserv of uh, hospital epidemiologists across the nation. We put it out to about 144 folks and got about 46 responses, which is great. But really the question that was posed was, in your expert opinion, what would be the number needed to test to find one asymptomatic patient to find continued asymptomatic testing beneficial? So that was kind of the second half to try and make this benchmark baseline and see where we can compare our admission data to. All right. So tell us what you found. And so we found that with our survey question, we had about 46 responses out of the 144 people that were surveyed. And of these, about 54% felt that asymptomatic admission testing for SARS-CoV-2 may have limited utility when the number needed to test to find one positive patient was out of more than 100. And then we figured folks who were comfortable with thinking that there may be continued benefit to testing if it was one out of 100 would also feel the same way about one out of 10, one out of 50. And so we that's kind of how we found essentially that majority, majority number to make our benchmark or break our threshold. All in all, when we looked at the four different hospitals, we actually didn't have any low transmission or defined low transmission levels. We really just were defining it by, at the time, the CDC definitions of moderate, substantial, and high. So we unfortunately didn't get to really compare anything to our lower or defined low transmission settings. So taking all hospitals collectively, the number need to test significantly met the clinically meaningful threshold of 100 during times of high transmission compared to other times of transmission, which isn't unexpected. So for the moderate and substantial transmission levels, that point estimate of number need to test 
did meet that clinically meaningful threshold of 100, but these values were not statistically significant by their confidence interval analysis. And so by and large, this was a very similar trend when we broke it out between each hospital systems in that all the data really suggested that there may be a continued benefit to testing essentially. When we broke this data out between our vaccination studies, overall during that study period, the number needed to test point values for non-fully vaccinated patients did significantly meet our clinical meaningful threshold of 100. And so this contrasted with our fully vaccinated folks and that their point estimates for their number needed to test values did not meet 100. And so some of them were above. Again, it was really just the confidence intervals that held them back from having statistical significance. But our data for our vaccination data did suggest that there could be some benefit potentially to not testing fully vaccinated folks if you didn't take the clinical significance into account. And so by and large, I mean, overall conclusions suggested that there may be a continued benefit to testing asymptomatic folks across our all of our four hospital settings, and that it may not be if you were to consider adjusting or reevaluating your own hospital system that potentially consider limiting testing to not fully vaccinated patients in times of lower transmission. Great. So are there any important limitations we should know about? The biggest, I feel like the biggest limitations of our study, and I feel like this is probably still an ongoing question, is that the number needed to test is a good metric, but it doesn't really define like the number needed to test to prevent transmission. And so it really is just the number needed to test to detect. And so to truly find, I think, causation of a nosocomial transmission is such a, I think, nuanced and complicated question and determination to find. And so I think even with this study, it was great, but I think putting all this in context of, again, very unique hospital settings. And so for instance, like our, you know, our hospital, we didn't, we weren't able to compare in times of low community transmission. And so that I think was a, a metric we may have missed out on. It would be really interesting to know really what the numbers were in times of lower transmission. Again, I think the biggest thing too with this is that this is all pre-Delta and pre-Omicron. And so it would be really interesting now to kind of find out how the uniqueness or even immune evasiveness aspects of those variants would change the outcomes or the data that we found. That's really helpful. And also the determination of somebody being fully vaccinated has gotten very complicated since the time of your study, which may even further complicate that, the aspect of bringing that into the equation. So thank you. So Jerome, your study was in many ways similar to the Vanderbilt study that we just heard about, but it includes data from late 2020 until May of 2022, and therefore includes several months of data after the emergence of the Omicron variant, which Jen mentioned was a, a limitation of their study in terms of applying it to the more modern times, if you will. So tell us more about what you and your colleagues were interested in learning from your data. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is uh, Jerome and very happy to speak about our prospective quality improvement study that we conducted in Toronto. And to follow up with Jen's uh, study, really one of our primary questions was to compare the value of universal emission testing after the emergence of Omicron. We know that before Omicron, we tended to see a lot of or identify a lot of patients who were recovered positives and not necessarily infectious. And this was a huge workload and burden. But we actually were interested to see if this had changed after Omicron emerged, given that we know that 
patients with the Omicron variant are more likely overall to be asymptomatic. And we also know that this variant has been associated with increased risk of transmission. And certainly we've seen more healthcare-associated transmission, not less, since the emergence of Omicron. And so it was really important for us to better understand whether this is a valuable tool on a go-forward basis. And so what we did is we performed a prospective quality improvement study. It began actually in October 2020 when we first implemented universal admission testing. And we continued the study until the end of May of 2022. So there were 14 months before Omicron, basically being compared to five months since the emergence of the Omicron variant. The main measures we prospectively tracked were the overall rate of positivity, but we actually also looked further at the proportion of positives that were considered infectious. And we did this using a standardized definition that incorporated whether or not patients developed symptoms, whether they had mild symptoms perhaps that hadn't been determined, so they actually weren't truly asymptomatic, whether they had a known epi risk in terms of a known contact. And then, of course, we also looked at their cycle threshold, which has been correlated in previous studies to predict the risk or the the ability to to culture a virus. And basically using that assessment, similar to some other studies that have done this, we were able to determine the proportion that we felt could pose a potential infectious risk. And then we went a step further and we prospectively assessed contacts of those patients to look at secondary attack rates among roommates in particular. As we mentioned earlier, and as Tom I think mentioned roommates are are certainly a higher risk of transmission. And that's an important context for our study, which is that at my hospital in Toronto, and and actually I think probably not uncommonly across Canada in general, we have a lot of hospitals that have aged infrastructure where there continue to be a large proportion of shared rooms. And so my hospital in particular has 60% shared rooms, only 40% privates. And so that was an important context in which we were interested in looking at the value of this testing. In terms of results, the asymptomatic positivity rate overall was 1.5% before Omicron and increased to 4.7% post-Omicron. And of course, that just tells us the overall positivity rate Using our standardized definition for those that are considered infectious, about that was about 17% of that 1.5% before Omicron that were actually infectious. So the vast majority were non-infectious, but that actually more than doubled post-Omicron to 42%. So just shy of half being considered infectious. Linking back to Jen's data related to the NNT, it was interesting to hear about her survey that she did, which can perform a, can be a bit of a context for our data as well. We found that the NNT for detecting a infectious case was consistently over 100 before Omicron, but after Omicron dropped to 51, and there was even a month where it was as low as 17. So certainly a lot more value in terms of determining those that would potentially pose an infection or transmission risk, particularly in shared rooms. In terms of outcomes, when we received these results, whenever they were received before the patient was required to transfer up to the ward in order to maintain flow, they, of course, preferentially went to a private room. And that happened about a quarter of the time. And then there was about another half that were would have gone to a private room anyways. And then of those who were who needed to go to a shared room, we were able to minimize the exposure time to under 11 hours. And overall, we only saw three roommate transmissions among those that were deemed to be infectious. And all three of those occurred during the Omicron period, such that the overall share secondary attack rate was low, less than 5%, which is certainly lower than we would expect among roommate contacts. 
So overall, the bottom line is that we were able to estimate based on the patient flow factors that I mentioned in terms of whether or not they went to a private or shared room and how much transmission we averted at least based on what we would have expected in the literature, that before Omicron, this universal testing was associated with 0.24, so about a quarter of a case per month averted in terms of transmission, whereas that increased to actually three averted transmissions per month during the Omicron period. So certainly more value there in terms of maintaining this program since Omicron emerged. But there are important limitations. So this is a single center study. And I think the biggest limitation is we lacked a control group. And so we're really relying on what we would expect to see among transmission, among roommates in particular, to assess for benefit. And certainly the fact that that we seem to identify more potentially infectious cases while maintaining a low secondary attack rate is our really best metric of of the value of this kind of testing since Omicron. The second limitation is we use a standardized definition for determining which patients were considered infectious. As uh, David, you mentioned at the beginning, there are limitations to that. We do the best that we can prospectively. This was based on prospective infection control assessment based on symptoms, epi, and incorporating the cycle threshold. And the cycle threshold that we used works in our lab. And certainly there's been Canadian data around this, but certainly that could vary from site to site. And it's it's never going to be perfect. And then finally, I think another important limitation is just around external validity of the study, right? So this was undertaken in Canada. Whereas I mentioned, it's pretty common to have shared hospital rooms. There are newer facilities that have all private rooms. Some of my colleagues have brand new hospitals in the greater Toronto area and certainly don't face the same challenges. But this was certainly in a context where we have a lot of shared rooms. And so certainly the ability or the value of this testing and averting transmission will be greater in those kind of facilities. You and Jen both raised some good points about how important context is with regard to this, both your structural context of your own specific hospital, and I certainly can share your experience with having many multi-bedded rooms as well, and of course the community context as well and what's going on in terms of community transmission. But Emil, one of the points that Jerome and his colleagues make in their discussion of their paper is that admission testing does not identify those patients who are early in the incubation period time of admission and who may not be detected at the time of admission testing or detectable at the time of admission testing. And they mention that additional study is needed of post-admission testing strategies. And in fact, that's the topic of your paper. So I think that's a great time to transition to, to your work. And so can you tell us about what you and your colleagues were trying to do in your research? Sure can. Yes. And first of all, thank you for having me. I'm honored and excited to be part of this this discussion. The order presented is a really nice transition because our our studies, I believe, complement each other. And so the impetus for our study, we looked at the benefit and cost of repeating a PCR test after the second day of admission for a lot of the main reason, as you just presented, and the other panelists presented as well. And we we wanted to do that across five hospitals during various community prevalences and vaccination rates. So first of all, structurally, we looked at five hospitals. One was a major tertiary care teaching hospitals with one of the busiest ERs overcrowding in the country, and 50% or more of the rooms are shared, are semi-private. A good portion of the hospitals have aging infrastructure, including core ventilation systems and ventilation systems, negative pressures that, that often fail. During the early phase, we converted entire wards by taking out the windows and putting in big exhaust fans. So that's what we were, we were faced with. 
We also noticed that we were having significant outbreaks at our facility, and these were fatal outbreaks. And, and that was the main trigger. And one of these outbreaks was published in your journal earlier. Especially what we were noticing was on the dementia ward and the memory care ward and on the stroke wards, you know, where the care of those patients needed frequent close contact for physical and occupational therapy. Or on the behavioral health ward, patients could not or would not comply with masking or restricted movement. And some of our outbreaks were, were linked to those events. And then finally, another ward that was plagued was the cardiac ward. We had noticed that the symptoms of COVID often mimic the symptoms of congestive heart failure. And, you know, it was hard to distinguish between. So with that in mind, we undertook this test, this study, and we aim to compare the existing testing strategy, that's a, an admission PCR, to a new testing strategy that would be after 48 hours of admission. And how it worked was we partnered with our health informatics team and a clinical decision support tool was developed that anytime a provider opened the patient's chart, an inpatient's chart, after 48 hours of admission, they received an alert. And they said, this patient is due for a COVID test. Please order. And that would continue to fire every time the chart was open, no matter who, you know, a licensed provider who could order something that would fire until it was acted upon. And it would, could be acted upon by either ordering a test or dismissing. And dismissing would, would then lead to a drop-down menu that said, why are you dismissing? And we had a few comments. The most common reasons for dismissing was, I'm not part of the healthcare team. Patient refused testing or patient will be discharged within 48 hours. And earlier in our program, you said, well, the, you know, our compliance rate was fairly low, and, and that's why. In our table, you'll see that every patient who was admit, admitted was eligible for testing. That was our number eligible for testing. Then we tracked the firing of the BPA or the best practice alert, and then we tracked actual orders that resulted. And that's how you see that decrement from 5,000 sometimes down. We wanted to take it a step further. Knowing that number needed to test can sometimes overestimate the benefit of a strategy because it doesn't fully account for the cases that would be normally detected by the existing strategy or that would, you know, a provider would say, I'm going to get a test anyway. We try to account for that by taking it a step further and calling it the number needed to benefit. And these methods are described in several good references that we use. And basically, you kind of take the number detected from the new strategy, subtract it from the old strategy's number detected, and then you take the inverse of that. And, and that's how we calculated this number needed to benefit. The so study what did you find after doing all of that? Yeah, so the study lasted about a year. And half of the study period was alpha lineage, and the, the last half of the study period was delta lineage. And we also took into account the community metrics, percent positive new cases, the seven-day rolling average, percent number of new admissions in the hospital, and then the vaccination rate. And so what we found was that looking at the number needed to test and the number needed to benefit and the cost per detection uh, varied across the study. So the number needed to test varied from a low of 16 early on in the study to a high of 588. The number needed to benefit varied from a low of 16 additional tests to a high of approximately exactly 769. So 
you know, number needed to benefit got as high as almost 800. Or, and then the number needed to test was higher than that, almost 900. As others have done, we use the cost per test at $50. That seems to be a widely used, I've seen in our panelist studies. And we looked at the cost per detection and the cost per detection at high community transmission, high admission rates was a low of $800 and varied as much as went up to as high as almost $20,000, $30,000 per additional detection. We put that all together and we did it as you can present that. Hospitals can use that to inform decision making and they can go to their seat, you know, their financial officers and say, you know, this is the benefit. And at the time when we were having fatal outbreaks and we were having limited options, countermeasures, we didn't have all the booster vaccines available or the or the Paxlovid, et cetera. We said these costs seem excessive, but you know, the downstream effect of, of a nosocomial transmission can be also substantial. And we found that the other bottom line was that we closed the paper and said, here's a provisional threshold that hospitals could consider. And that is when the coverage, and, and it doesn't have to necessarily apply for SARS, COVID-2, but it could be a similarly behaving respiratory virus or an, a, a novel pathogen where you don't have initial vaccines. So a threshold to look at is when the community vaccination rate reaches about 50%. Once that happens, you should, we said, maybe consider only the second day testing, post-admission testing, when the seven-day rolling average of new hospitalization is more than two for 100,000 residents. Using that threshold, we actually turn on and off this beat, this best practice advisory at our facility. You know, when we had peaks over the next several months, we turned it back on after having turned it off. Are there any important limitations or unanswered questions that we should be aware of? You know, our study has several limitations. We only had a limited number of community factors that, that we could do. We could not take into other structural issues like staffing levels, other important factors. But that said, you know, we, we think it might provide an agnostic approach to say, okay, if you want to do post-admission testing, this is an orientation for you about the number needed to benefit and such like that. So I appreciate that. And again, we're hearing more about some of the contextual factors that people might need to think about structurally, as well as some of those community case rates and things like that. So I think we're seeing some very similar themes across all three of these studies. And I'll, I'll also note that Lee Smith and her colleagues at Johns Hopkins published their findings from a program of weekly screening among hospitalized patients in this month's issue of Itchy. They were unable to join us today to talk about their work, but I do encourage everyone to read that paper as well, because I think it also has some interesting findings that might be helpful. So I think this has been a great discussion of a topic that I think is really of great interest to many of our listeners. And we end each episode of the podcast by asking our guests to give listeners an action item that they can take away from the podcast and put into practice immediately. And my question today is based on, I think, what's a very common experience in infection control, and that's that changing practice is difficult, whether you're adding a new practice or stopping or de-escalating an existing practice. So my question for each of you is, if one of our listeners wants to reevaluate their current asymptomatic testing program, and that could be either to narrow or potentially eliminate an existing program or even start a new program, how do they begin that process? What are some of the most important things to consider? So Jennifer, I'm going to start with you. I think a really important factor is 
you know, what makes your hospital or your patient population unique, that's going to be considered. So especially like <clears throat> inpatient psychiatric wards, that would have a very different consideration than maybe like a routine, you know, academic center, community hospital. And I think another big thing was, I know we're reevaluating asymptomatic testing, but I think it'd be a good time to kind of reevaluate any other holes that you may have in your IP system. I mean, are there anything that you can strengthen that may take the place or be just as good as asymptomatic testing? Great. How about you, Jerome? First, I think it's really important for programs to go beyond simply looking at positivity rates, because as we've noted recurrently, asymptomatic testing will pick up recovered cases. So you're really particularly interested in that subset that are potentially acute or potentially infectious at the time of their detection. And as we've talked about during this podcast, your ability to do so depends on a clinical assessment. And so really that data needs to be collected prospectively by infection control coordinators and by by the, by the team. And I think that's something that is useful to track to the extent that those cases that are asymptomatic and determined to be potentially infectious are ending up in areas where there can be a transmission risk. And we've talked about shared rooms or semi-private rooms. That's where I think there could still be ongoing value for using that testing. Emil, how about you? What do you think? I think an important consideration is, as you know, it's all said by our predecessors in our current, is the lemon going to be worth the squeeze? And so consider, you know, the cost, but also consider the unintended consequences of this or any strategy. And then finally, if you're going to use, consider trying to make a dynamic or adjustable intervention that can be more easily turned off or turned on again. So, and that was kind of a side effect benefit of this strategy, you know, your, your informatics people can just turn it back off again. But there are unintended consequences. And, and as the epidemic or the pandemic evolves, a lot of those things change. And, you know, I'm in full agreement now with, you know, in the Shea commentary that I think it's time to definitely reconsider this across the board. Thank you. And, and Tom, you get the last word. What do you recommend? Well, first of all, I think these three papers were great to really kind of inform further this really intricate issue. I think my advice would be to use the guidance in the commentary, do the risk assessment, really. And as you're thinking about either escalating or de-escalating, I think like we tend to do in infection prevention is gather the stakeholders that have a vested interest in it and really got to get their opinions and perspectives. And I'll use one example from my institution. We, we stopped pre-procedure testing for most procedures about two months ago. And that was an issue that when we started the pandemic, we had groups in our institution that were very much, very fervent about, we, we must do this, you know, for our own safety, et cetera. And so when we were deciding whether to do that, just we brought the literature, some data on elective intubation and risk of aerosol and their comfort level and had that discussion in a little bit more measured way where we couldn't do at the start of the pandemic when things were so rushed to kind of talk through what are we looking at? What does the evidence show us? What are our parameters where we would stop? And then would we restart and kind of have that clarity of discussion, not in an emergent scenario, but in a let's be objective and look at all that together. So that at the time, if it were to come that you had to restart this practice, you've had those conversations and that dialogue. And I think that's not that we didn't in the early pandemic, but I think we were all so rushed. <laughs> it's cliche, but we were building the plane as we flew it. And now the luxury of kind of stepping back working with those key stakeholders, going over these papers and these guidance to say, look, let's reevaluate our practices and is there something differently we could do and what thresholds we use to, to trigger if we were to start testing again? 
Perfect. Well, I think those are all great recommendations and ideas. And I want to thank you all once again for spending time with us today to share your knowledge and experience. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.